This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. I want to continue in the issue of forgiveness because what does that mean? As I'm pulling out of a forgiveness seminar, when God forgives us, what's going on? What's his intention? And so forth. And I want to go back a few years, um, 2009. Some of you remember this story of Josef Fritzl, who was caught after holding his daughter captive for 24 years. He incarcerated her in a basement dungeon at age 18, and she was not delivered until she was 42. He fathered seven children by her. Three of the children, and of course when he incarcerated her, he forced her to write a note that she had joined some strange cult somewhere and couldn't be known where she was and all this stuff. And then when she had the first baby, he made her write a note that the cult didn't allow her to have a baby, and so she dropped it off on the door. It appears mysteriously on the front doorstep during the night, and so he and his wife heroically adopt this child and are raising it, and... To make a long story short, three of the seven had that experience of being raised thinking they were abandoned by a mother in a cult. The other three, the other four I should say, remained in the dungeon with their mother. One died a very few months old and he cremated it in his own furnace. And the other three lived all of their days. One of them was up 10, 12, 13 years old, has never been out of 800 square feet underground, never seen the sun, never seen grass, etc., etc. Finally, one of the kids was deathly sick in the dungeon, and the daughter convinced him to take the kid to the hospital, and that eventually broke the case loose, and she was rescued, etc., I have to ask the question, though, if you are Elizabeth Fritzel, the daughter who was raped thousands of times and impregnated at least seven times by your own father, what does it mean to forgive your father? And what does it not mean? I'll go to story number two. This is a case I was involved with. I've changed her name to Samantha. I was a young pastor in the Greater New York Conference. Samantha was an adoptee, an Asian adoptee, and after, sometime after the adoption, when she was, I don't know, between two and four or so, the adoptive parents divorced, and she went with the mother, which is very typical in those days, particularly in early 80s. Mom, I'm not sure if mom was an Adventist yet. Somewhere in this process, mom became an Adventist, uh, she was also an alcoholic who went sober through AA and all this. And um, she remarried a non-Adventist, and somewhere in there she's the Adventist. The new husband, stepfather figure, is a non-Adventist. At age 15, Samantha tried to commit suicide by jumping in front of a city bus, but the bus stopped in time to spare her life. 
She then tried, they lived in a um, condo that was wood frame. She tried to torch the complex. And so they got her to the school counselor and after some probing, it finally came out that the stepfather had been sexually molesting her from age seven to 15 with full privileges starting around age 12. I got on the case because I knew the woman from other meetings. They were from a neighboring district to mine. Because a literature evangelist with pedophilic tendencies had been a member of my church and had left um, before I got there. I, I'm, I'm in the... I'm the new pastor. I'm here like three weeks and all this is coming down on me, you know. And, uh, and so uh, she mentioned his passes at her that she had resisted. And so as the pastor of that church, their conference is trying to get me up to speed. Well, of course, the father got arrested and put in the county jail. And the daughter... Gets, because of her suicide attempts, gets put in the county psych hospital. And the irony was is that you had the county hospital with the psych ward on the same property a quarter of a mile away is the jail where the dad is, where the stepdad is. And so their pastor had gone through the hoops and visited the girl in the psych center. Then he got in his car and he drove out down the quarter mile in and he visited the non-Avenist father figure in jail. And the psych people thought, oh, here we go. This is a Christian pastor trying to broker a forgiveness deal so she won't press charges. And so they made a ruling that no Avenist pastors could make visits in that hospital. Very logical ruling. And so the mother wheeled and dealed and finally the deal was the guy who visited both can visit the father in prison, but not the girl. Find a new Adventist pastor who will visit the girl, but not the father. And that's where I got the call. Of course, question number one is, for Samantha to forgive her father, what does that mean? I went in because now I had to have face-to-face -face with the head psychiatrist, you know to get the rules of engagement, what I'm not allowed to do and do and so forth. And I still remember walking into her office. I was young, uh, 26 or so. She didn't look to be more than low 30s. She had memorabilia of a religion other than Christianity all over her office. She was a high-powered executive MD psychiatrist. I was ushered into a large office and you had to walk like 10 yards across the carpet to get to her desk that she's sitting behind. And I entered the room, walked up to her, she said not a word. Finally, she pointed at a chair, I sat down 
First words out of her mouth were not, hello, nice to meet you, or anything like that. First words out of her mouth were, I will not let you visit Samantha unless you promise not to talk to her about that Christian forgiveness crap. I felt like saying, aren't we being professional today? I said, could you please explain to me what you understand Christian forgiveness to be? And it was basically let him off the hook and forget it and pretend it never happened. And we hear a lot of that today, don't we? I said to her, I'm not convinced that's Christian or at least biblical forgiveness. Would you mind me sharing my understanding? Now she doesn't know what to do with me because I just agreed with her as a Christian. I began to explain, and I'll say more about this later, but the more I talked, the more a little smile started to appear on her face. I'll come back to that a little bit later. Let's go to a third scenario, the battered wife or the battered husband. If you're the victim of this battering, what does it mean to forgive? What are you trying to accomplish by forgiving the spouse who is beating you up? Because this needs to be practical, doesn't it? Too often, mental health experts are very unhappy with how Christians handle forgiveness because they basically feel it fuels dysfunction and victimization. And yet at the same time, if we're supposed to be gracious and forgiving, like Christ asks us to, what does that mean? How does it work? And again, I have a camp meeting seminar on this. I've just drawn a little bit uh, for this um, thing. So what does forgiveness mean? Does it simply mean dropping the charges, forgetting it? Does forgiveness mean I have to be a perpetual victim? Does forgiveness somehow restore a relationship and heal it? If so, how? Do I risk being victimized again? I saw this interesting story about a Catholic priest who got caught cavorting with bikini-clad girl on the Miami beach, because he was from the Miami area, as I recall. And, uh, and of course, the church defrocked him because he didn't appear to be holding to his priestly vows of avoiding the opposite sex. And so he was promptly hired by the Episcopals. And, um, and he said, uh, you know, the church is about seeking God and not people. He said the church is about forgiveness. What does he mean by forgiveness here? No, let's just forget it. Yeah, I'm sorry, forget it. You know, never happened. Done, over, um, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very typical response today. I remember you know, the legendary Columbine massacre, and like within 24 hours, people put up big signs, we forgive you. What does that mean? You know, what does that mean? Here, forgiveness seems to suggest a demand for reinstatement to his priest without recognition of breaching employment standards. Let's pretend nothing ever happened. In other words, a lot of people confuse 
or equate, maybe is a better word, a lot of people equate forgiveness as amnesty. What is amnesty? What's at the root? Same root as amnesia. Let's forget it and pretend it never happened, right? So forgiveness is used in more than one way. That complicates our problem. What does it mean when God forgives us? Uh, we use it to excuse a trivial action. So the toddler who you know, doesn't have spatial awareness knocks their sippy cup off the high chair, splat all over the floor, and it's upsetting, but you say, oh, I forgive him. You know. I understand they really don't know what they're doing. I forgive. You know, let it go. It's also used as the equivalent of amnesty, as we've said. Even if it's something significant, let's just pretend it never happened. Let bygones be bygones, and away we go. If I'm Elizabeth Fritzel, is this going to work? Why? Why? Does it build resentment? Because there's another issue of justice. It's easy to let something small go, right? The cost-benefit ratio is not um, worth the effort of getting angry over, so we say, ah, it's not worth it, forget it. And we call that forgiveness. But the reality is, if I'm Elizabeth Fritzel, that's not a cost-benefit, or Samantha, right? And probably the battered spouse or husband. Some, it's a reward for penance. So Kobe Bryant had an affair, and by George, he got his wife a $4 million ring, and lo and behold, all was well again. She, quote, forgave him. Are any of these Bible forgiveness? I'm not convinced. I'd like to suggest my primary definition of forgiveness is it is a process that God ordains to remedy anger and restore relationships. Now, I've pulled some stuff out of this to condense it. What do I mean by anger? Do not confuse anger with rage and vitriol for this presentation. Anger is that sense of injustice that says, Something wrong was done to me and I want it fixed. You may express that with vitriol rage or you may express it calmly and collectedly. But anger is that sense of violation and God built it into us because we get so absorbed in what we were doing that if we're mistreated, we wouldn't even notice it. But like the burn sensors in your finger, you know, whoa, gets your attention. Something's wrong here, I need to address it. So it's there for our protection, but sin warps it, and we mismanage it. And so when hurt and injustice, when my rights are violated, I want something done about it. And then sin warps that also to expectations. The sovereign self says, I want this, and you don't do it, I'm angry at you, right? And we suddenly give ourselves rights, you know. But the point is, it's that sense of the violated right. 
right? Elizabeth has a right not to be molested by her father, Samantha likewise, right? A right not to have to father his children, a right not to be confined to 800, 600, or whatever it was, square feet, underground, no sunlight, etc. And all of that is violated through violent force. It's a good thing he didn't drop dead of a heart attack or they would have starved to death in there, right? No one knew they were there. Hello, did I, oh, I turned my switch. Ah, I just said this, all right. It is not rage, vitriol, fury, etc. These are inappropriate expressions, but it's this built-in response. Anger is the cry for justice. Something's wrong, and I want it righted. And so we find these expressions for justice in the Bible. Jeremiah, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Something's wrong here, Lord. Fix it. And you pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. Genesis, you know, the Abel's blood is said to cry to God for justice from the ground. I like the souls under the altar, right? How long, O Lord, do you take care of this and avenge our blood? Whatever forgiveness is then, in my estimation, you cannot subvert justice and be effective. And this is why a lot of children who were raised in Christian homes and were forced to forgive in a way that made them feel justice was subverted, leave the church. If Christianity is about acting stupidly and unjustly, I don't want it. And it's this subversion of justice that Samantha's doctor feared and what the battered husband or wife fears and what Elizabeth probably feared. And yet we hear this call of Christ to forgive 70 times 7. So how do we put this together? In addition, another hindrance to forgiveness. In addition to undermining justice, we fear that seeking justice is selfish, self-centered, um, etc. And that's, you know, we're not supposed to be selfish, right? So that complicates the psychology of this. And so we tend to fear anger as being a sin and we are ignorant of the role of anger in the forgiveness process. It's interesting, Paul says, be angry and sin not. Anger is not a sin. It's how you manage it that becomes the sin. So we fear that we're sinning by being angry. But Paul says you can be angry without sinning. What does he say, though? He keeps on going and says, don't let the sun go down. In other words, don't sit here and stew in it forever. Take care of it. Address it. Now, again, I'm way simplifying here, but how, do, how are we not to manage anger? There are two basic mismanagement styles, denial and justification of anger. Denial is the passive form where we try to pretend that there was never a problem to start with because we don't have the courage to face it. This is often the response of the powerless. And so the victimized wife or even the sexual abuse victim tries to convince themselves 
that there's really nothing wrong here. And therefore, since there's nothing wrong, I can't be angry. And you bury it all, right? And that leads to various problems. Ahithophel is a great example of this. Um, that's the counselor who defected from David to Absalom and tried to help organize the rebellion. And then it weighs in, David sends Hushai, claiming to be changing sides, and Absalom takes Hushai's advice, which was designed to actually help David, and Ahithophel knew at that moment it's over. And he's going to face the music. And the problem, of course, is because he helped launch Absalom, he expects Absalom to favor him. Right? He has an expectation, a right to be favored. You know, I'm the, who's this Hushai guy? He's an interloper. You know. But the king is the king. He can do whatever he wants. But he should have listened. No, he's the king. And so he goes into denial mode. He goes very fast. He said, it's over. There's no hope. I'm going to stand trial, you know. So he takes off. Doesn't talk to the king about it. Communication breakdown, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He goes home, tidies up the house, hung himself. The passive form, if taken far enough, leads to depression and suicide. Because you have no hope of solution. Because you can't really admit there's a problem. The justified side is equally bad. David demonstrates this when he takes care of, uh, remember when he was running from Saul for a season, he starts to protect the flocks and herds of Nabal. I read in a Jewish publication, uh, they connected, uh, who was Nabal's wife, by the way? Abigail. David had a half-sister named Abigail. If you go to the genealogies and chronicles, and she married a guy with some unpronounceable name. And the Jewish tradition says that this Abigail is that half-sister of David. And I suspect that Nabal then is a nickname because he was such an idiot. Yeah. As his name is, right, means fool. So it's likely that David, fleeing from Saul in the wilderness, as is typical of people on the run, you go to your relatives for hiding and help, right? But he just doesn't want to mooch, so he initiates by guarding his half-brother's flocks and herds from the marauding bands for a season. And then he sends his men into Nabal and says, your servant David could use a little help. And what did David say? And what did Nabal say? Who's David? We got guys breaking away from their masters and so forth. The likelihood is he knew jolly well who David was because it's his brother-in-law. And hence David was angry. And what does he say? I'm going to wipe out the whole bunch of men. Anything that's male, gone. And the servants figure out what's going on and they get Abigail to intervene, right? Remember that story. And the point is justified anger taken far enough can lead to setting yourself up as the judge and executioner and murder. And this is why Jesus says if you hate your brother, you're a murderer because it's the logical conclusion even if you don't act out on it. 
Now, as Christians, we definitely are afraid of this one, right? For obvious reasons. It tends to bring out very ungodly behavior. And therefore, the conservative Christian is more likely to fall into the passive trap than the active trap, which leads to a different set of um, problems. So most Christians recognize that both of these are wrong, but they also tend to favor the passive one, and yet they recognize a need to exercise the forgiveness option. So if these two ways of handling anger are wrong and we're supposed to forgive, what's the right way? Now let's go a little further here. We have, I get this from Marlon Yeshke's book, Discipling in the Church. Uh, he summarizes this night's sleep. We tend to have two prevailing views of forgiveness then in the church. One I think favors the passive, one favors the active response uh, to anger. The lenient view says, oh, we forgive at the drop of a hat, for easy, endlessly. We don't want to confront, discipline, offend. Uh, forgiveness tends to be viewed as unconditional. Just do it. You got Just forgive, drop it, forget it. Um, the goal is to magnify mercy, and particularly God's mercy, and the hope is that this grand mercy will incite repentance in the offender. And so the idea here is, is that when the abused wife forgives the abusive husband, he is so thankful that she forgave him instead of prosecuting him that he wants to change. Now I see our good doctor giving a little snicker. Why? Why? It doesn't work that way. You're right. Number one, it doesn't work that way because the offender probably doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. What's she forgiving me for? If she wants to forgive me, fine, but I don't need forgiveness. I'm not doing anything wrong. And her saying, I forgive, is the signal for him to keep on doing what he's doing. Because he doesn't see anything wrong. You see, we presuppose that the offender sees it as wrong and therefore that they have a sense of guilt and that by being unconditionally forgiven, that will move them. Hey, I get a chance to escape this guilt. Which leads me to the second point. In my estimation then, this view does not take slavery to sin into account. It assumes the basic goodness of the human heart and that if we give it this nice gift, this naturally good heart will wake up out of its stupor and want to do the right thing. And we don't reckon with the need of new birth and deliverance from the power of sin. This is a view of forgiveness that we find all over the church today. And so the girl gets pregnant out of wedlock and oh, let's just love her and not offend her, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Don't talk about it. Just oh, forgive her and she'll appreciate it and so forth and so on and so on. Not convinced this works for Elizabeth Fritzel. The strict view is the opposite one. These folks are concerned about encouraging sin and they want to discourage presumption. So they want some kind of rigorous punitive disciplinary process where the person suffers for their sin and a period of time to prove 
their change of mind, and then we might think about forgiving them. And I've had a few people on the church board like this. They have a memory of an elephant. And somebody who was a kid in the church and is now an adult, and we want to make him a deacon in the church, and oh, when he was 15 years old, he stole a candy bar, you know. I'm not sure he's shown enough repentance. He's 40 years old, you know. Right? And so these are the folks that make you need to earn. And so forgiveness becomes very much contingent on moral reform. Fix yourself up first, then we forgive. Sorrow for sin, etc., etc. And their goal is they want to take God's holiness and righteousness seriously. A noble goal. But they get one-sided with it. And it borders on scaring people into repentance instead of wooing them. Now, Yeski makes the point then. Let's go back to the lenient view then. The lenient view is dropping charges. Let's just forget it happened. And hence, it's an amnesty. Just forget it. The focus of the lenient view is the forgiver, not the forgiven. And the focus is on changing the forgiver so that this does not eat them up like a cancer, doesn't hurt you, etc. All the benefits of the forgiveness are for me, the forgiver, not to eat my heart out. You, know. you hear this, it's the cost-benefit argument, right? Holding on this grudge is worse for you than it is for the one you hold the grudge against, so let it go, don't worry about it. You're more benefited by letting go than by hanging on. But the sinner is thus left in sin and really is not called to make a change because the focus of change is in the psychology of the forgiver, not in the behavior of the forgiven or the attitude. And the criticism then, this view tends to take, if we confront the sinner and say you need to change, they're the ones, these lenient folk will say you're being unforgiving because you're not just letting go. Forgiveness is, tends to be equated with acceptance. So in other words, I cannot accept someone without really forgiving. I can't receive them graciously without forgiving kind of an attitude. And finally, next to finally, it leaves those justice issues unresolved. Ah, just forget it. And so forgiveness is reduced to a mere bare absolution. By contrast, the strict view tends to replace repentance and moral trans punishment replaces repentance and moral transformation. And so this can lead to the attitude that since I've paid my dues, I can go do it again, do as I please. I've settled my debt, it's over, no claim on me. Or the penalty is viewed, I have a typo I see here, the penalty is viewed as compensation for a wrong done and hence it reeks of works righteousness. So you either compensate and get credit for your compensation, or you've paid your dues and you're free to do as jolly well as you please. 
The criticisms, of course, is that this is harsh, that justice overpowers grace and love. And again, it calls for and makes no change in the sinner. And it leaves in question what kind of change happens in the forgiver. Um, here, the focus is trying to change the offender, but you're trying to change him before you forgive him. And hence, it tends not to be overly redemptive. Both views then leave the sinner in sin unchanged. The problem of human sinfulness is not addressed, that whole slavery to sin thing we talked about, because the focus becomes compensating for behavior. Both views cannot answer the relation of forgiveness to justice and love, and each in their own way leaves a sense of injustice or harshness. The lenient view leaves the victim wondering, I get left out hung to dry. The strict view can go on forever and ever, and the poor, uh, the so-called repentant, feels like they can never get out from under the burden. And that becomes unfair this way. So, the lenient subverts justice because nothing is made right. It's not fair just to drop it. And may discourage repentance in the offender. It subverts healing because it enables and empowers misbehavior and dysfunction. Wounds are swept under the rug instead of dealt with. Boy, I had a whole church who had regular explosions because everybody believed in unconditional forgiveness. And so everything under the rug until you got a whole time bomb under there and then boom, the shrapnel goes all over the place. And healthy relationships become almost impossible. The strict subverts justice because it tends toward a vigilante mentality. The person never gets out from under their burden of guilt. The focus is on vengeance, not reconciliation. It discourages repentance in the offender because why should I repent if you stay hostile? It subverts healing because it undermines trust and accountability. You build up walls of secrecy, hate and distrust to defend yourself from further invasion etc. And again, it makes the healthy relationship impossible. So let's eliminate then what forgiveness is not, in my opinion, biblically. First of all, forgiveness is not a restoration of a relationship to the point it was at before the offense. See, that's the amnesty model. Let's just pretend this never happened. And so it's not amnesty either, but yet I'm saying it's not a subversion of justice. Matthew 18, I think, gives us a clue as to how the process is supposed to work. If your brother sins against you, go to him alone. If he listens to you, you have what? Gained your brother. That's the whole goal. To gain the brother. To restore the relationship. So does how I go to the brother who has offended me affect the likelihood of gaining them? 
Notice he doesn't say, go tell the whole world about it. You go alone. Why? To preserve their dignity. Because if you violate their dignity publicly, it becomes almost impossible to win them. They now feel insulted. Insulted dignity makes reconciliation almost harder. Now, something I skipped, I'll just say here. For us to go to the brother with the right spirit, we have to give the defense of our rights to God and his appointed agencies. This is why the Bible says, don't ever avenge your own wrong. Leave it to God or his agencies, the courts, the family, the church, etc. Because you have a conflict of interest, and if you try to take care of it yourself, you're going to overdo it. You're going to do it wrong. So God says, take it to someone who's more objective, that I've put in a position of authority, and let them adjudicate and deal with the case for you. And if they screw up, trust me, I've got it in the investigative judgment. It will be taken care of one way or another. So it's our ability to trust God and his appointed agencies to deal with the justice issue that allows us to be gracious and go in to heal instead of to attack. And since we're going in to heal, we start alone. And then, of course, I just say two words here because it's getting late. If that doesn't work, what do you do? you take another one or two with you. Why? Again, you're trying to keep it small to protect the dignity and embarrassment issue. And only if it's unresolvable there do we go public with the whole church. And then Jesus promises where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm with them. What are the two or three gathered for in this context? See, you plus one or two witnesses equals two or three. So when the two or three of you are visiting the offender trying to work out the problem, Christ says, wherever those two or three are gathered in this confrontation, I'm with you. So it wasn't originally meant for prayer meeting where only two or three showed up. Peter responds to this section by saying, how many times shall I forgive? And Jesus follows with the story of 10,000 talents and 70 times 7. I want to come back to the story of 10,000 talents for a moment because this starts to get at the heart of the matter. Guy owes a debt of 10,000 talents. In their money, that would be like all the wealth of the world. Bill Gates could not pay this debt. And this servant says, give me time and I'll pay it back. Right? What has he been smoking? 
But the king says, I forgive you. But the servant doesn't think he needs forgiveness. He thinks he only needs time. So what does he do? He goes, finds a guy who owes him a hundred bucks, throttles him by the neck and says, pay up or else. Why is he so intent with this guy? Because he's trying to rustle up some money to put a down payment to show he's going to pay his debt. He hasn't accepted the forgiveness principle. Now look at it from the king's side. For him to forgive 10,000 talent debt means what? He's got to absorb that cost himself. Write it off, pay it himself. Forgiveness is costly to the forgiver. And it is the forgiver who satisfies the cost of justice. God ultimately through the death of his son. We absorb the emotional cost and we give the judgment stuff to God, right? But for Elizabeth Fritzl to forgive her father means an emotional cost and trust God and the courts with the justice issue. That's the first part. So the key is, unlike amnesty where we drop the charge and the fine never gets paid, we just What's the complaint about amnesty? Think about immigration arguments over the last 20 years. They want to give an immigration bill for the illegal residents, right? Amnesty, sign in. And the opponents immediately say, if you give amnesty now, then a whole new crop of illegals will come in and they'll wait until the next amnesty. You promote lawlessness with amnesty. You break down because you don't enforce your rules. That's why forgiveness can't be amnesty or it would break down that sense of restraint. Oh, God doesn't mean what he says. So God enters the lion's den and satisfies the cost of forgiveness himself to show he means what he says, but still open a way to be merciful. In Genesis 22, in the story of Abraham, one of the, mo of the uh, sacrifice of Isaac, one of the most profound statements about atonement, I think, in all the Bible. Isaac says, where's the lamb? God will see to it, very literally in Hebrew. God will see to it. God will provide for himself the lamb of burnt offering. God will step in and pay his own debt with his own money. Or I should say my debt to him with his own money. Let's go to Galatians because I'm tired and my brain has gone dead.
Galatians. Ah, yes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He did not subvert the law. He did not bypass the law. He took that curse on himself and executed the sentence. Amnesty, by contrast, is not costly. It demands no self-sacrifice. That's why we love, right? We can forgive without self-sacrifice, without self-emptying. And it ignores justice. So to forgive, we must first give the justice issues to God's court and earthly agencies. Then we must be ready to absorb the cost of justice. See, this is the sacrifice in the sanctuary, is God saying, I'll step in and take the curse. I'll pay the penalty myself. I will settle the justice issue so that my law stays in force. Forgiveness then is excusing a person from my wrath because I have transferred that issue to God and his agencies. It means I absorb, a volunteer to absorb the cost, especially emotionally in this case, of satisfaction of justice. It means I provide the offender with a clean slate, here's the key point now, on which to build a new reputation and relationship without the past being held against him, but it does not put the relationship back to where it was. Let's pretend nothing ever happened. When God forgave Adam and Eve in the garden, they didn't go back to Eden before the fall. What they were given was a new blank slate to build a new reputation with God without the past rebellion being held against them. And over time, that healing can lead to a full restoration. Wife has affair on husband. Forgiveness doesn't, oh, let's just pretend it never happened. It says, let's do the hard work of learning to trust each other again and give you a way of rekindling that trust over time. Forgiveness doesn't mean I have to stick myself in stupid situations. And so we come back to Samantha. I said to the doctor, I believe forgiveness is about changing people. And if she were to do mere amnesty and say, oh, I dropped the charges, this guy walks and he's going to hurt some other kid. She needs to prosecute him not to make her feel better, but for his correction. So she can forgive and give the issue of justice to the court and to God so that she can deal kindly and graciously at the same time not be stupid and be safe. She doesn't give him another opportunity to victimize her, but she doesn't have to be nasty about it, right? So she can be gracious and kind and forgiving, but she cannot entrust himself, 
herself to his power until he shows correction over time with help and accountability. Forgiveness is about calling the other person. If you want to change and build a new reputation, I'll absorb the cost so you can change without that holding you back. And that's what God has done for us. This is why Ellen White says we are on probation. Right? We're the ex-con on probation. We're not full privileges until end here, right? We're betrothed. We're not yet married, etc., etc. I shared that little view with the doctor. She started to smile and she looked at me and said, I got no problem with you and gave me full visitation privileges because the sanctuary calls the offender to take responsibility for their actions, to confess it specifically to say that's wrong, I ought not to be doing it, I'm responsible, I chose, I want to get rid of it and live a different way. But if we don't have forgiveness and satisfaction of justice, the victim will always be afraid because it's unresolved business here, right? But when the victim says, I'll absorb that cost, I'll take that voluntarily, if you want to change, now we have that basis to draw them out and say, there's nothing to hold you back from changing and becoming a healthy person with me. Let's see what we can do. That's what God's trying to do with us. And we have a probationary time in this life where we rebuild the trust of God that says, enter into the joy of my Lord. I know you're not going to cause any more trouble or what some would call an Adventist circle safe to save, right? I, almost, I don't like that in the sense I think I'm already saved, but the point is I'm safe to take on to the next step. That's what the sanctuary daily service is about to me, is that process that calls us to say, I'm wrong, dead to rights, over, do with me what you want, Lord, and he says, good, I want you to take that sin from you and I want to give you a clean slate and I want to recreate you in my image without holding that past against you. That's good news. And that process in real relationships brings healthy healing instead of this monkey business and dysfunction that we often see in the name of forgiveness. Sanctuary is a powerful tool, rightly understood. Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's go through our protocol very quickly then. We enter the gate, Christ, through with thanksgiving and humility and admitting we were wrong, thankful for God's deliverance, provisions, etc. We confess and transfer our sins. I don't want it anymore. I want to change. I want to be cleansed. We pray our way onto the labor. Lord, I need more than forgiveness and payment of penalty. I need change. I need fix. I need cleansing. We go into the holy place. Lord, I know I can't do this without you. I'm dependent on you, the bread of life. I have to trust you instead of how I feel. I need you to guide me and trust that guidance in spite of how I feel, that I'm a new creature even though I don't feel like it, etc., etc. And he presents the offering 
before the throne and God says, you're forgiven. Let's build a new life together that's healthy and healed. All of us want that. That's why we're at GYC. May God help us as we enter into that experience and pray our way through the sanctuary. And as we do that, we become that theater of the universe that says God can deliver from sin. Satan doesn't have the last word in this world. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Help us remember that we are sinners. Think of Joseph Fritzl going to the sanctuary, having to take responsibility for abusing his daughter, asking God to deliver him, change him, cleanse him, having to make amends, and learning how to relate healthily, how different life could be if the gospel had been at work. Help us to be wise and full in our view of forgiveness, that it challenges the forgiver to bear a cost, but the forgiven to leave the evil and heal the relationship into a healthy, whole, functioning, happy affair. Bless us to that end, we pray. In the name of Jesus, let God's people say, Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.